0: Scene 10, part B, of No Surrender by Constance Elizabeth Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scene 10, the dinner party, part B. The seven couples filed in languidly, uttering short ready-made nothings, and took their places at the long oval table. Mary O'Neill found herself next to Sir Charles Crompton, whom she had not met since the day she had, as her aunt described it, been taken with an attack of midsummer madness in the garden the result of course of going over the mill on such a day many but futile had been the efforts of sir charles to see his divinity during the year that had elapsed for in spite of midsummer madness and partly perhaps even because of it she remained always his one and only divinity mary had not intentionally avoided him but she avoided his world and his set feeling less and less in common with them as she threw herself more and more into the absorbing work and interest of the great woman's movement politics had never appealed to her the idea of working for a party was to her paltry cramping and uninspiring she would as soon have devoted her energies to a milliner's shop but she was ready to help any party, Tory, Whig, or Radical, who worked for a measure bringing national good, and the women's vote, she had become convinced, was essential to the national welfare. Alice Walker had persuaded Mary to come to this dinner, feeling she needed an antidote to the three auntie-ladies invited by her mother, now prevented from entertaining them. But she had kept the aunties from Mary, making mention merely of Joe Hopton as an inducement. Alice had a sneaking liking for the stiff, upright Sir Charles, with his persistent constancy, to an unattainable star, and determined to give him a chance as she considered it. Though a chance of the most chancy description, she was bound to confess to herself. Lady Thistlethwaite's high soprano soared above the hum of the other voices. "'I hear you're the best bridge player in town, Mr. Boulder.' you must write a book on the auction and cut out my brother theodore he's quite too impossibly conceited and needs taking down mr boulder murmured something about being a bit off colour he didn't get time enough now he had taken up golf again and i suppose those tiresome cabinet meetings to say nothing of the house encroach on your time dreadfully lady thistlethwaite's voice vibrated with sympathy but for a moment the right honourable gentleman shot a glance of suspicion at his fair neighbour her melting blue eyes reassured him and he ignored the mischievous laugh of his sister-in-law and her remark as she turned to count these poor ministers c'est un métier de chien isn't it count ma foi mademoiselle a dog's life i would say that description admirably accurate for the poor english ministers in this moment mr weir camp looked up his keen rugged face puckered with amusement miss walker might have been through the downing street mill herself well i've had something to do with the mills and mill hands you see said alice and any woman with a grain of sympathy or intuition has only to look at you poor unfortunate ministers to realise the awful strain it must be to hold the reins of government "'Alice, you're a great deal too flippant for a lady at the head of the table. "'Remember, you are representing mother to-night,' said her sister, "'joining in a conversation which promised to be more lively than that on the other side of the table. "'Thank you, Helen, darling. I'd forgotten.' "'Alice turned again to the Count. "'My mother always treats the cabinet as bearers of the whole weight of the Empire. "'So sweet of her, isn't it?' "'The Empire!' struck in Lady Thistlethwaite. I saw you there last night, Mister Boulder, and you simply wouldn't look at me. You are so taken up with the new Delilah. Alice laughed as she said aside to her neighbor, "Lady Thistlethwaite doesn't count the other Empire. There is but one for her, you see." Parfaitement," said the Count. "Delilah has a successful over here. It appears." He spoke across to Lady Thistlethwaite in foreign fashion. In Paris, no one requires something more to be shocking that is well up to a certain point but not enough see you for the parisienne you're quite right count said lady thistlethwaite lifting the blue eyes to him approvingly i don't think she's a patch on lady kitty cravenhawk a charity performance you ought to have seen at lady ankisher's last week she wore rose gauze nothing else all the men went perfectly mad about her and i can quite understand it i'm going to get her for my church bazaar to draw you men you must come promise but enchanted dear madame the count bowed and smiled sir charles turned to mary are you taking part in this bazaar mary smiled at his serious earnestness oh no we have a bazaar of our own but no such attractions sir charles gave her no answering smile he said fervently, I'm glad to hear it, very glad. Glad to hear we have a bazaar? Glad to hear you have no ladies in rose gauze, he said curtly. Then again his eyes rested on her, and he asked almost humbly, May I come to your bazaar? Do you really wish to? Mary could no more picture Charles Crompton at a bazaar than at a mother's meeting. He was one of those people whose personality requires their own particular niche certainly or i should not ask but you don't know yet whether it is for an object you approve i am one of those dreadful women don't forget she refused to take him seriously a suffragist i know but i yes a suffragist and a suffragette too mary laughed surely not a militant as they call themselves you must see that their actions only alienate those who are true friends to the women's cause True friends are not so easily alienated, even if they have other methods themselves. As to those who are not friends, Mary was serious now, in spite of herself. He took her up quickly. Don't mistake me, please, Miss O'Neill. I am objecting only to the militants and their violent methods. Since we last parted, I have gone thoroughly into the question of the women's vote, and, well, I—my views have changed— "'It has been a matter of great distress to my sister, but there it is. "'I believe in a vote for the propertied woman.' "'I am delighted to hear it.' "'Mary felt an unholy joy as she looked at his sister. "'It is one step forward. "'I hope before long you will take another.' "'He ignored the little bantering tone. "'It is a serious thing to find oneself at variance with those of one's own family, though.' A very unpleasant and i may say awkward thing charles crompton glanced across at his sister in deep converse with mr crowley the latter apparently in the last stages of acute boredom though not yet through the second course i agree with you mary realized he was after all quite human it is the heaviest price we women have been called upon to pay finding ourselves in opposition to our nearest and dearest raising a bitter hostility in many cases such as has no comparison with any other question private or public my brothers and i can't speak on the subject at all she went on with her usual frank simplicity and we've been such close friends all our lives that i can't tell you what it means to me but mary looked at him with sudden interest do tell me what made you change your opinion first the great surprise i may say shock he gave an odd little laugh, of finding you on that side, you of all women, and then the curious arguments used by my sister Selina and her friends, who are so, so vehemently against it. It obliged me to reconstruct my views, and to inquire more deeply into the matter. With the result, Mary smiled her old friendly smile on him once more, the misleading smile that had made him believe heaven within his grasp. "'Well, the only result when one goes deeply into the matter.' "'Yes,' he agreed, then, realizing with a start she was leading him heaven alone knew where. "'But violence and law-breaking can never be right—never, that is, for women,' he added hastily. "'I do most earnestly trust that you will never associate yourself with any really violent policy, Miss O'Neill. I hoped—' I wanted to believe we were working for the same object, and in the same way, and that— Oh, not in the same way at all, I assure you. Mary was taking fright, too. But always are good, and I'm so glad you have joined the army, though we can't be in the same regiment. I'm in the artillery, you see. You are a gallant lancer. She was on safe ground again. Guns are not made for women's delicate hands. Sir Charles looked at her wistfully. She eluded him always. "'Delicate hands,' laughed Mary. "'The majority of our hands,' she glanced at his, "'are far less delicate than yours, Sir Charles. "'We are a great army of working women. "'You won't care to come to my bazaar now?' He looked straight in front of him, lost in thought. "'Ah, you see?' she laughed, and he turned half angrily. "'I shall come, in hopes of converting you to my views.' then pray don't come it would be labour lost love's labour lost was ever such a foolish blind persistent man it's curious how many people have come to believe in women's suffrage by listening to the arguments of the aunties remarked mary in a pleasant wholly detached tone which reduced the unfortunate charles to a state of such hopeless depression he fell an easy victim to mrs boulder who already tired of her own man had been waiting for an opportunity to annex him. Mary, on her side, was soon deep in French forests with M. Delaunay. She discovered his favourite pastime, not the slaying of the wild inhabitants, but forestry, the art of keeping their greenwood kingdom. Off they went through the length and breadth of Touraine, where the Delaunay's once held miles of wonderful forest land, and still owned a little foot of earth. In vain did Sir Charles endeavour to recapture his lady. He could neither do this nor shake himself free from the web of endless small talk woven round him by Helen Boulder, who imagined him completely under her own spell. Suddenly, the passing of the angel hushed the busy human voices. It was but for an almost imperceptible instant, and then the clear decided tones of Mrs. Prendergast fearlessly broke the silent pause, and Mary left the forests of Touraine, "'and turned to listen to the famous traveller. "'We've been doing grand work for the last few months,' she was saying. "'Our league marches on triumphantly. "'I quote your words constantly, Mr. Boulder, "'and if there's a spark of womanly feeling or true patriotism in a woman, "'she comes over to us at once.' "'What words are those, Mrs. Prendergast?' asked Mrs. Boulder, "'always on the alert to dart into the middle of another conversation. "'Horace lets fall so many pearls, you see.' "'Mrs. Prendergast turned solemnly to the flighty little lady. "'I referred to the speech in which Mr. Boulder said he believed "'that to admit women to the suffrage "'would mean the inevitable decadence and degradation "'not only of our national life, but of the race.' "'A golden nugget, certainly,' laughed Mrs. Boulder, "'turning again to her neighbour, Sir Charles, "'whose attempt to regain the attention of Mary O'Neill "'had not yet been successful.' Mrs. Prendergast had no use for the flippant. She turned to Joe Hopton and inquired searchingly. "'Do you not agree with that verdict, Mr. Hopton?' Joe's brows were contracted with conflicting thought. He paused a moment before he answered. "'I'm certainly of the opinion that women are best out of politics. Still,' he hesitated, but Mrs. Prendergast pinned him down instantly. "'You are! I thought so. Now that, coming from you, Mr. Hopton, interests me deeply.' Mary lost Joe's reply in the sudden rising, like a tide, of all voices as the subject of women's suffrage caught first one and then another, and swept round the table, immersing all the company. Mr. Weir Kemp, still firmly held by Miss Crompton, raised his voice above the ante-din in evident protest at her attitude. "'Well, but I approve of women's suffrage, you know. I don't take your melancholy view,' he said i even believe that the nation would be on the whole better and happier for it though of course i don't hold with the militant party and their tactics i sincerely hope you do not said miss crompton but i'm glad to say our anti-league's magnificent work has practically killed off the whole silly hysterical agitation mr Weircamp shook his shaggy head don't you believe it my dear lady it takes a lot of killing when you get one society alone "'And, mind you, there are thirty at least. "'Giving some fifty thousand a year to oil the wheels. "'None of them rich women either, remember? "'It's a hydra-headed monster,' he laughed. "'The more you clip it, the more vigorously it crops up, "'and in the most unexpected quarters.' "'You mean these insufferable females crop up "'in the most unexpected quarters?' "'sniffed Miss Crompton scornfully. "'It was men like this,' she was reflecting, "'whose pusillanimous attitude was really responsible for the evil.' "'Look how they invade your most private sanctums.' She would try and rouse him to a little manly feeling. "'Your most sacred spots. Look at that sacrilegious scene in Middleham Church last month. There wasn't a paper that was not full of it.' He actually laughed. "'Just so. That was why they did it, no doubt. To keep the matter before the public. Advertisement, you see.' "'Nice kind of advertisement,' snapped Miss Crompton.' "'Going to prison for breaking windows is an advertisement, too, I suppose.' She turned away and addressed her friend, Noel Crowley, who, having been sadly neglected by his other neighbour, was now quite glad to be talked to. "'Prison is a great deal too good for them,' he said with energy. "'Personally, I'd give them a taste of the cat-o'-nine-tails.' Joe Hopton looked across at him. "'That's queer talk for a man,' he muttered to himself. Charles Crompton also cast a contemptuous glance on Crowley, and murmured aside to Mary O'Neill, "'Insufferable puppy that fellow is!' Mary said nothing, but her eyes showed a dangerous light, like that of the mother bird when a hawk is in sight. "'Oh, I do so agree with you, Mr. Crowley,' went on Miss Crompton warmly, "'and so few men have the courage to say it. Do you know, when I was lecturing in Japan last winter, a very intelligent Jap said to me, but what the intelligent jap said was nipped in the bud by the french count who leaning across the table interrupted eagerly begging that the remedy so warmly advocated might be explained to him for this feminist movement had for him an enormous interest the catanintus what was it mr crowley was convulsed with laughter but the laughter had an artificial ring and his manner was a trifle over easy as he answered His eyeglass cocked jauntily in one eye. "'The cat-o'-nine-tails, Count? The good old lash, that is. Well, it was a remedy tried with female politicians in other and less sentimental times. You may remember the present Emperor of Austria found it most efficacious with both Hungarian and Italian rebel women some forty years ago, and I do not doubt we should find it equally so with the suffragette rebel.' Count Delaunay's expression was enigmatical. He wore a bland smile as he asked, turning from Noel Crowley to Mr. Boulder. "'You find it efficacious for your male political levels?' "'Ah, well, no. I can't say we propose adopting Mr. Crowley's drastic measure for male agitators.' Mr. Boulder laughed pleasantly. The idea was really humorous. "'Mr. Crowley would not recommend it, I suppose, for Mr. Green and Mr. Brown, for instance?' came suddenly from the silent labour member so silent he had been almost forgotten ha <laughs> ha capital idea that sir godfrey and his son-in-law joined in a hearty laugh we have to be careful how we handle the irishmen my dear count shouted sir godfrey across the table but not the voteless women murmured mary to her neighbour Vidon, monsieur the count looked from one to the other in amused surprise there exist then englishmen who would even follow the example of a barbarous german of forty years ago so little gallant are you in england that when the ladies ask you for a rendezvous for a vote piff-paff you take them by the shoulders and conduct them to an ugly prison and this parbleu even when the woman is young and pretty vidon i say of what are you british made to be so brutal sir godfrey took up the defence that's all very fine count but what are we to do you and france don't grow this type of woman ah but yes we have also our feminists they have achieved much already they become doctors advocates members of the institute and even drivers of the fiacre we make no objection Oh, my dear count, there is no comparison. French women are quite different. And without doubt, French men also are quite different. A French man he would be capable perhaps of kissing a suffragette if she were pretty. But nefer, nefer would he place her in prison Difference of temperament, I suppose. Can you wonder I am against the militants? murmured Sir Charles aside to Mary. "'This is the kind of thing to which they subject themselves and their sex.' "'I don't think, Count, that you can have any idea "'of what our unfortunate ministers have had to endure "'from these violent, crazy women,' said Miss Crompton, "'also hopeful of bringing the Frenchman to a better mind. "'I assure you they have been far too leniently dealt with by mere imprisonment.' "'They don't care a rap for imprisonment,' remarked Crowley with a lisp. "'Perhaps they do care a good many raps for their cause,' said Alice Walker, suddenly screwing herself up to boldly break a lance for the cause. "'I wonder how many of you anti-suffrage men and women would go to Holloway jail, in the same class, remember, as drunkards and thieves, for your anti-ism. Now, Mrs. Prendergast, and you, Miss Crompton, would your patriotism go the length of three months in Holloway, if by going you could avert what you call the calamity of women's suffrage?' Sir Charles looked across at his sister. That is a severe test, certainly. Oh, dear, oh, dear! Fancy Alice, of all people, getting serious and plunging into political discussions! How foolish, poor darling! sighed Lady Thistlethwaite to Mr. Boulder. Very foolish, agreed the gentleman heartily. She will soon lose all her charm if she becomes a politician. I think we've had enough of this tiresome subject anyway, don't you?' well personally though i loathe it i can't keep off it laughed his fair neighbour for mrs prendergast also the subject seemed to exercise a weird charm she yearned to enlighten the deplorable darkness of the frenchman he ought to be set right with this idea she addressed him again and so impressively that other talk automatically languished and most of the party found themselves listening and mentally backing one or the other your attitude madame interests me profoundly the count assured her politely you would i understand refuse to your own sex the vote you who have created for yourself a position distinguished and emancipated you have climbed even the highest mountains is it not so they tell me also you sit on that other mountain height the municipal council "'I have done so ever since my dear husband's death,' answered Mrs. Prendergast, in a tone of suitable gloom. Women may, I consider, legitimately take part in municipal affairs, but not in those of Parliament, where imperial and national questions should be left to man alone. I would see women functioning where nature intended, monsieur, in the home, but not in the arena of politics, where, while neglecting her own duties, she but serves to make herself ridiculous. Women cannot fight, therefore they have no right to a voice in law-making. It may be primitive, it may be elemental, but so is nature, and physical force is, after all is said and done, the ultimate basis of law. A murmur of applause from the aunties present followed this utterance mr weir kemp and sir charles after a strenuous effort to follow the reasoning gave it up exchanging a befogged look with each other Monsieur delaunay waited like a keen chess-player for his adversary's hand to leave the board then nipped in alertly oh la la is it at that point you are still in england surely madame in that moment when a gun superseded a feast physical force was dethroned by the brain the brain also in its turn must bow before the law of moral force surely the ultimate basis should be the justice my good madame would you have us still to resemble our ancestors the savage animals testing our right to rule by the strength of the claw and the tooth mrs prendergast shrugged her shoulders and looked towards mr boulder a look which said poor gentleman what is to be done with such forms of lunacy well i'm glad i wasn't put to the test of tooth and claw before they returned me for northoven remarked mr weirkemp crowley how would you have felt if some of these young suffragettes from yorkshire had called you into the ring eh thank you mr weirkemp but my art is superior to their brute force. i have learnt du replied that young man with sublime equanimity he's admitting the count's argument said sir charles aside to mary and was rewarded by the twinkle in the soft grey eyes of his divinity mr boulder though he would gladly have dropped the hateful subject felt since mrs prendergast had tacitly appealed to him it was incumbent on him not to leave the misguided frenchman in possession of the field or rather since he had his feet firmly planted on that particular bit of ground "'beguile him on to some less solid nearby.' "'You see, count,' he said, "'it is necessary to distinguish between these troublesome, crazy women "'and the well-meaning, though misguided ladies "'who form the old suffrage societies. "'You must know that besides breaking every prison rule, "'smashing their windows and biting the wardresses, "'these suffragettes have now taken to starving themselves. "'Now how would you deal with that in your gay Paris? this announcement was received in varying manner according to the temperament of the hearer sir godfrey blustered angrily lady thistlethwaite lifted blue eyes swimming with sympathy to the speaker the frenchman exclaimed ma foi miss crompton and mrs prendergast uttered exclamations of contemptuous scorn crazy unsexed hysterical joe hopton looked sullen and depressed charles crompton incredulous "'till he caught the ardent light on Mary's face. "'Alice Walker gave a little gasp of horror "'as she turned to Mr. Weir-Kemp. "'Not really?' she asked. "'Yes, it is a fact,' he said. "'We had to release four to-day "'who had refused all food for over five days "'and were naturally in a precarious condition in consequence.' "'Refused all food for five days?' "'cried the Count, in a very burst of enthusiasm. "'But he is heroic.' It is folly if you will but sublime folly and the motive mr crowley dashed in where his betters hesitated to tread the motive cussedness count to put it in one expressive word they only do it to annoy because they know it teases chirped helen boulder no longer able to stand the strain of so much serious talk and mr boulder gladly turned with her into shallower and pleasanter waters no, but seriously, the count insisted, why do they inflict on themselves this torture? Oh, on the grounds answered Sir Godfrey, if you please, of a protest against being put in the second division. Of course, you see, it pays observed Miss Crompton. They get let out at the end of five days instead of serving their proper term. Cunning jades, I'd not let them out. I'd double the sentence, lisped Noel Crowley. Mr. Weir Kemp gave him a look that should have blighted him for life. But that wouldn't make these women give in, and we can't have them dying on our hands, he said. Mrs. Prendergast turned suddenly on her silent neighbour. Now, I should like to know what you would do with them, Mr. Hopton. They are a great many of them women from your part of the world, I believe, North Country. Sir Godfrey heard the question and added yes now let us hear your views mr hopton joe hopton looked as though he would have preferred keeping them locked up in his own breast but he answered slowly and sternly i'm not in favour of women meddling with a man's job and governing the country is a man's job but all the same hear hear that's sound cried his host encouragingly well joe's mouth hardened as he went on his voice growing more dominant "'and ever less suitable for a dinner-party. "'But I can't help saying that, according to my view, "'all political prisoners, whether male or female, "'and of whatsoever class, "'have a right to claim First Division treatment.' "'Quite so, quite so,' agreed Mr. Boulder, with a genial smile. "'But that's just the point. "'These women are not political prisoners, you see.' "'They're street brawlers,' said Mrs. Prendergast, "'with quiet insistence.' "'You see, Mr. Hopton,' explained Sir Godfrey, in his downright and no-nonsense tones, "'if you have no political status and no civil rights, "'you can't possibly be qualified as a political prisoner, according to law. "'If a small boy breaks my windows, declaring himself to be a Russian nihilist, "'I punish him as a naughty, mischievous boy, not as a political prisoner. "'It's the same with these women.' "'Perfectly logical,' supplemented Miss Crompton, "'thereby, as she knew, earning the approval of her host. "'No nonsense about her, either.' "'Joe Hopton looked from one to the other, "'his soul protesting, yet finding no fit words. "'I am surprised to hear that is really so. "'I must honestly say I'd heard it from the women themselves, "'and always denied it.' "'He spoke hesitatingly. "'In this smart dining-room he was a fish out of water, and could not strike out with his usual bold free stroke live and learn live and learn mr hopton cried sir godfrey his good humour quite restored that is a golden precept for the wisest among us again the count's voice was heard in a laudable desire for information on this to him most typical and characteristic english movement and your men in england they do not resent their wives and sisters being placed in prison with the second class of thieves and drunkards that is so interesting with us in france i assure you ladies and gentlemen if the government treated so our women the whole population would be indignant to the point of revolution difference of temperament as you said just now count said alice with a look at her brother-in-law who deep in converse with lady thistlethwaite was affecting not to hear again mrs prendergast made a manful attempt to enlighten the wrong-headed frenchman she leant forward and pleaded the cause of the men of the government pray monsieur do not think that these women represent the women our men are bound to respect and do respect i am proud to say englishmen are ever just and chivalrous when rightly appealed to this is a case of much cry and little wool made by a handful of idle hysterical women. The women who matter, the serious workers of the country, are all against women's suffrage, let me tell you. Mary gave Alice a look, a look signifying she really could not bear much more. Alice replied with a quick sign of comprehension, and rather breathless, herself rushed to pick up the gauntlet Mrs. Prendergast had flung down. I suppose you would be very much surprised if you knew that as many as a quarter of a million working women wanted the vote as much as ever their fathers and husbands wanted it. Mrs. Prendergast? she asked in her clear, ringing young voice, her pink cheeks and blue eyes very bright. Mrs. Prendergast's eyebrows went up in an arch of surprise at this onslaught from so unexpected a quarter. I should indeed, my dear Miss Walker... I should feel not only that the world was coming to an end, but that it was highly to be desired it should do so, she answered, somewhat tartly. Sir Godfrey looked seriously annoyed. I think my daughter seems to have got a bee in her bonnet. A quarter of a million! A quarter of a hundred, more like! But that's just the way women distort and exaggerate, he blustered. Women's ideas of figures and numbers are always somewhat quaint, remarked Mr. Boulder, indulgently. Through the dining-room door, left just ajar, Alice had perceived a girl's figure. She took a white orchid from the vase in front of her, and held it up an instant, saying somewhat irrelevantly, but very clearly, "'Oh, it's all right!' Whereupon, the girl outside quickly entered the dining-room, and took up her stand just behind the Right Honourable Horace Boulder. Parkins, at the moment, had his back turned, being occupied with the champagne in her hands jenny carried a big roll on a tray she fixed watchful eyes on the face of alice walker horace there is a girl here a friend of mine who has something with very quaint figures which i wish you would look at said alice leaning forward and speaking quietly but with rising colour really where is the lady you are always full of quaint surprises alice said her brother-in-law jenny came instantly to his side holding out the petition i beg you will look at this petition sir it is she began but he turned with a start what's this he said sharply and putting up his eyeglass to examine the roll. a quarter of a million signatures ha votes for women indeed my dear alice is this a joke forgive me please everybody no horace it is very sober earnest this time do just hear what she has to say alice walker was horribly nervous by now for several of her guests had stopped talking and were looking round in surprised interest this is most original votes for women cried monsieur de enchanted at this new diversion sir godfrey taken up with his neighbour pretty little mrs weir to whom he was recounting at length the history of an old master he had bought from a clergyman's widow as a rare bargain suddenly became aware of the intruder mrs weir kemp had seen and heard all though her attention had never wavered she was silent as a china ornament which she closely resembled but a good listener and to all old men therefore a charming woman sir godfrey broke off with a gasp as his eye lit on jenny standing at the back of mr boulder's chair parkins he shouted parkins who is that woman what right has she here parkins made a movement forward and then as quickly retreated gasping "'Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. "'William, George!' "'He appealed in vain. "'The two wax statues remained immovable, "'flanking the sideboard. "'No muscle of their faces twitched. "'Only the epaulets on their shoulders quivered slightly. "'Father, I know her. She's all right. "'She has something very interesting to show us,' "'Alice said cheerfully. "'My dear Alice, have you taken leave of your senses?' "'spluttered her father angrily. "'Who is this woman?' "'A friend of mine, and of Mary's,' she added with a happy inspiration, knowing her father's partiality for her cousin. There was now a dead silence. All eyes were fixed on Jenny Clegg, standing there in the shawl and clogs of the mill. "'Jenny!' cried Mary, in unfeigned astonishment, as Jenny turned and the light fell full on her face. "'Jenny Clegg!' muttered Joe Hopton between his teeth. He had longed for the sight of her every day since they parted, but he would rather have seen her behind prison bars than here at this moment. "'And Lydia's new woman!' half-shrieked Lady Thistlethwaite, in genuine alarm. Sir Godfrey rose majestically and thundered forth. "'Parkins, conduct this person downstairs. Parkins!' The butler, yellow with fear, his knees shaking and knocking together, came forward. "'Yes, sir, yes, sir!' "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, how did she ever get in?' he groaned, not yet having recognised the intruder in her new guise. Mr. Boulder came gallantly to the rescue, and even Alice felt grateful to him. "'Since this person is your daughter's friend, Sir Godfrey, pray do let her explain her reason for coming here,' he said. "'What an outrageous affair!' exclaimed Mrs. Prendergast. "'One is never safe!' sighed Miss Crompton." "'Ah, but this is most profoundly interesting,' cried the Count. "'Speak, woman, and be quick about it,' shouted Sir Godfrey. So Jenny spoke. "'You doubt that the working woman wants the vote, gentlemen? "'I am a Lancashire mill-hand. "'This petition is signed by a quarter of a million working women like myself, "'and represents more than another quarter of a million.' "'Alice, this is preposterous. It's—' "'It's damnable!' interrupted Sir Godfrey. "'I know it is, Father. "'But as she is here, do let her show this curious document, "'proving what you all refuse to believe,' pleaded his daughter. "'She won't be a minute. "'Go on, Jenny.' "'What rubbish these things are! "'I could get twice that number of signatures against it,' "'observed Mrs. Prendergast to her volcanic host, "'thereby producing another explosion.' "'Helen Boulder shook with laughter. "'Half hysterical it must be owned.' "'as she murmured, "'Oh, Alice, what will mother say, you naughty girl, you?' "'All we hold dear is at stake,' Jenny went on eagerly, addressing Mr. Boulder, but appealing to all the company. "'Your laws of Parliament are coming right inside our homes. We want to have a voice in our own work, what we will do and what we won't, in our own children, how they shall be fed and educated. We want a mother to be counted as a parent to the child she has born and raised.' "'Rather premature discourse from a young girl,' ejaculated Mrs. Prendergast. "'Damnable folly!' spluttered Sir Godfrey. "'She speaks well. Continue, ma fille,' said the Count, encouragingly. "'And one thing, gentlemen,' Jenny raised her voice and looked round the table, sparkling with its silver and glass and flowers, and at the brilliant company, she knew these would be her last words to-night.' "'We don't want any women or girls to be so crushed down by economic conditions "'that they are driven on to the streets to keep from starving, "'as thousands now are, whose pay is five shillings a week.' "'Sir Godfrey sprang to his feet, "'and a murmur of indignation hummed in the air like a whizzing of oncoming bullets. "'Well, Helen, you must stop this as Alice won't. "'I insist, the thing is preposterous, indecent.' again mr boulder with a ministerial movement of his hand calmed his agitated father-in-law pardon me sir godfrey may i say one word to this representative of the suffragettes sir godfrey sat down bubbling and foaming but he gave in again do and let us make an end of this scene for which i apologize heartily to my outraged guests but on the contrary nothing could be more interesting the count assured his host Mr. Boulder turned round and addressed the intruder, standing quietly and composedly at his side. "'My good girl, you and your friends are not in a position to judge these matters. Women's suffrage is not the panacea for all evils, as you seem to think. The suffrage is a very intricate, complicated question, beyond the grasp of most men even, and the consequences of women's suffrage would be vast and far-reaching in their mischievous results.' you could not understand this had i the time to go into it but i will just direct your attention to this significant fact wherever women have been allowed to vote the experiment has proved a signal failure in australia norway and finland all right-thinking women desire to abolish it in america the agitation is dead stone dead and in new zealand as the premier of that country told us at the albert hall meeting the other day "'It has proved only a disappointment.' "'But surely the Premier of New Zealand "'testified to the unqualified success of women's suffrage. "'I was there and heard him,' said Mary O'Neill, "'aside to Charles Crompton. "'Yes, but Mr. Boulder only read the press reports, you see,' "'he answered quietly. "'Women, had they a vote,' went on Mr. Boulder, "'would never restrict their influence to the home, "'and wiser heads than yours, my good girl.' Will tell you that women's influence in imperial matters would be nothing short of national disaster. That being so, we who hold the reins of government will never, mark my words, never listen to your clamour for the vote. We have the welfare of the country too much at heart. He turned and resumed an interrupted conversation with Lady Thistlethwaite. Admirable, said one voice. Hear, hear, said another. "'Men are men, and women are women. "'Until you can change that fact, women will never have the vote,' "'pronounced Mrs. Prendergast conclusively. "'For that reason we demand it. "'If women were inferior to men, we shouldn't want it,' retorted Mary. "'Ay, that's just it,' Jenny added warmly. "'Come, be off with you,' Sir Godfrey ordered in thundering tones. "'Not another word. You've had your answer.' "'a far more forbearing one than I should have given you. "'Parkins, put that thing in the fire at once.' "'He pointed to the women's petition on the table. "'Parkins darted forward, rolling it up with evident terror, "'lest it should explode. "'Jenny followed him anxiously. "'Please let me have it, Mr. Parkins.' "'But Parkins heeded her not, "'and the voice of his master followed him "'as he stumbled out of the room. "'Have that thing burnt at once, do you hear, Parkins?' "'Yes, sir, yes, sir,' answered the unhappy man. Suddenly, above the excited chorus of a dozen voices, sounded the ring and clang of the fire brigade and the approaching gallop of horses. Mrs. Boulder was the first to hear it. "'Listen! A fire! How awful! What are they shouting?' she said to Sir Charles. "'I think it must be a fire,' he answered. The word fire lit up round the table as if by electricity, and now, with a clatter, by dashed the fire brigade there was no mistake about it voices shouted outside a crowd had gathered a fire good heavens where can it be sir godfrey started up and several of his guests rushed to the window with him there's a crowd already the police are collecting in great numbers it must be quite near cried miss crompton in subdued excitement her dramatic instincts on the alert for copy don't go outside horace said his wife nervously we can see better from the balcony let us all go upstairs alice took a swift glance out of the window and whispered something to mary o'neil they exchanged a meaning smile and hastened with the rest upstairs it is no doubt the anarchists who cause an incendiary remarked the count pleasantly as he joined mrs boulder on the balcony in a moment the dining-room was deserted except for joe hopton he looked out of the window then, opening it wide, leant out and called to a passing policeman. The answer he received produced from Joe a shout of laughter. "'No fire at all! (laughs) Ha, ha! Suffragettes, did you say? Suffragettes as firemen? Announcing Albert Hall meeting for tomorrow? Well upon my life! What will they do next? I must go and see how my right honourable friends upstairs take this.' Joe shut down the window and walked thoughtfully upstairs. End of Scene 10, Part B. Read by Lisa Reichert.